Uh, we're going to start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We'll begin at verse 15, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, uh, the end of chapter 22, and come back and take a closer look. But uh, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing as we begin the day. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, again, we're going to start today at Matthew chapter 22. We're beginning at verse 15. We read some of these verses last week, but I want to go back and take a look. We ran ahead a little bit, and I think it would be appropriate for us to put these three challenges that Jesus was faced with in the latter part of Matthew chapter 22 together. So let's go ahead and begin at verse 15, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose life will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him 
not even a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. We've noticed that in these last few chapters that we've been looking at in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has now presented himself to the people of Jerusalem in a clear and unambiguous way as the Messiah. He is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. He came riding into the city on the back of a donkey, which was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He had entered through the golden gate. He went up to the temple and he cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers. And all of these things were meant to be a clear indicator that Jesus really was who he claimed to be and who the people were beginning to wonder that he might be. But not everybody was ecstatic about Jesus. The crowds, initially at least, were very excited. As you know, as he rode into the city, they were shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But while Jesus was a dream to some, he was a nightmare to others. Particularly, he was a nightmare to the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And as we're going to see here in the latter part of Matthew chapter 22, not only a nightmare to the scribes and the Pharisees, but to some of the other groups that existed as well, the Sadducees and the Herodians as well. Now, one of the reasons why these people, unlike the crowds that were hailing Jesus as the conquering hero as he rode into the city, one of the reasons why these groups, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Herodians were opposed to Jesus is because he called them out. And when he cleansed the temple, when he cursed the fig tree, Jesus was clearly saying to them that the problem was that they had a religion that was all show and no substance. It was, to borrow a phrase, a fruitless religion. It was just an outward appearance, but inside it was empty. And Jesus taught that very clearly in those two parables, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants. And we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees in particular understood very clearly. We said last week that there are some parables that Jesus taught, particularly earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, that are difficult for us to comprehend, difficult to understand sometimes. Um, sometimes the commentators continue to disagree as to what those parables might mean. That was not the case, we said, however, with these parables in Matthew chapter 21. Um, there was no doubt as to what these parables were about, and the scribes and the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was talking about them, and they took great offense. Uh, they were the tenants who had killed the messengers that had been sent by the king. Uh, they were the ones who had, or were about to at least, kill the king's son. Uh, they were the sons who had been given all of the privileges, that, that one son who said that he would be faithful, but ultimately was not faithful. They understood very well that these parables were about them. They took offense. And you know what happens uh, when somebody offends you or somebody accuses you of something, even if it's true, even if the accusation is valid, we know that very often as human beings, the first thing we want to do is to defend ourselves. And if not defend ourselves, what we want to do is we want to strike back, if we have no defense, at the one who is the accuser. And that's what we see happening here in verses 15 and following. We see these religious groups or these political groups within Judaism in the first century beginning to plot against Jesus. Now, you'll notice that verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. 
it's very clear they couldn't go at Jesus overtly. In other words, they couldn't seize him and put him to death or imprison him because they knew how he was regarded by the people. They knew that they regarded Jesus as a conquering hero. He had just performed that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. He was riding into the city of Jerusalem. The people really thought that he might be the Messiah. So there was no way that they could go after him in a very overt way. They had to take on Jesus in a more oblique fashion. And that's what verse 15 indicates to us. They decided or plotted how they were going to entangle him in his words. What they wanted to do was somehow trick Jesus, entrap Jesus. They wanted to ensnare Jesus in his own words. And so they came. They came with a series of questions. And the first of these questions were, of course, the question about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, we pointed this out last week, but I do want to come back to it because it really belongs with these, others, these other attempts, these other two attempts to ensnare Jesus. So they all go together. But the first attempt was this whole question of paying taxes, and we said that it was a question that was posed to Jesus by an unholy alliance. We're told that the Pharisees plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were a religious party. Uh, they were the most respected party in Judaism in the first century. Uh, they were adamant about keeping the law. Uh, they took seriously religious matters. We would have called them the conservatives of the day, the fundamentalists, the evangelicals of their days. They took very seriously the scriptures and the law, and they were very intent on keeping that law right down to the very last jot and tittle. The Herodians, on the other hand, were not a religious party. They were, for the most part, a political party. They were the supporters of King Herod. Now, you need to understand the Pharisees despised Herod. They felt that Herod was a man who was a traitor to the Jewish cause. He was part Jewish, but not entirely so. And what's more, he was working for the Romans. Caesar was the ultimate authority in the land. But one of the things that the Romans would do in the first century in order to keep the peace is that when they conquered a territory, they would oftentimes set up vassal rulers little potentates, little kings who would rule in their stead, who might be more palatable, more acceptable to the public. And that's what Herod was. So Herod was somebody who worked for the Romans, and he was despised, particularly by the more conservative groups within first century Judaism, which would have meant the Pharisees. So really, it's an astonishing thing that here in Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 15, that when the people, the religious leaders, uh, decide that they want to entrap Jesus, that they are willing to conspire for the Lord's downfall along with the Herodians. It's, it's a case of that old adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend. As much as they hated each other, they view Jesus as an even greater threat than one another. And so together they came and they posed this question about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, we pointed out last week that this was a serious question. Um, it was highly debated in first century Judaism in that time. Uh, should a person pay taxes or not pay taxes? And, and the Pharisees and the Herodians probably came up with this question together because no matter how Jesus answered it, they were convinced that he was going to offend somebody. 
If he answered one way, he was going to offend those who were supporters of the Pharisees. On the other hand, if he answered a different way, he would be an enemy or he would be disregarded by the Herodians or the supporters of the Herodians. So they felt that no matter how he answered, he would be in trouble with somebody. He would at least be discredited in the eyes of the people. They were looking, as he says here, for an attempt, a, a means of somehow entangling Jesus in his own words. Now, here again is why it's a dangerous question. If Jesus, on the one hand, says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar is a pagan. He's, um, the, the Roman Empire is, is supporting things that are contrary to the word of God. Well, then that would have made the Pharisees happy and the supporters of the Pharisees happy, but it would have made the Herodians angry because they owed their position, as I said, to Caesar. And so Jesus would have been in big trouble with Caesar. Uh, that would have been considered an insurrection, uh, the language of revolution, and Jesus could very easily have been arrested and tried. On the other hand, if Jesus turned around and said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, this is your legal obligation, well, then those who were followers of the Pharisees, particularly the Jewish people as a mass, as a whole, because they were so poor and taxes were so great, they would have seen Jesus as a traitor, traitor to their cause. And so both of these groups were convinced that this was the perfect question. There was no way that Jesus could escape. But as I've said to you on many other occasions, it is a dangerous thing to play poker with Jesus. Um, they asked him a question, but Jesus had a brilliant response. He simply asked for the coin that was used to pay the tax. And they produced that coin. And Jesus asked the question. He said, well, whose image is on it? And of course, Caesar's image was on it. The emperor's image was on it. If you've been to Britain, uh, you know that the queen's face is on every piece of currency, on every coin. Well, that's the way it was in the Roman Empire. All of the coinage had the emperor's image on it. And so Jesus asked the question, well, whose image is on it? And they said, well, Caesar's image is on it. When Jesus said, well, if it has Caesar's image on it, it must belong to Caesar, give it to Caesar. But then he replied, but give to God what belongs to God. And everybody understood what the Old Testament taught, that mankind had been made in the image of God. In fact, on the reverse side of that Roman coin, there would have been an image of one of the Roman deities. Jesus may very well have turned it over and said, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Ah, but here's an image of a god or a deity. Give to that god, give to that deity what belongs to him. It was Jesus' way of saying, because you belong to God, you should be giving everything that you have to him. Sure, give to Caesar what belongs to him, but give your life, your service, your passions to the Lord. And it was a brilliant response. Nobody really knew how to reply to that. And we said last week that Jesus did a number of things. First of all, he upheld Caesar's authority. He made it very clear that they were subject to the Roman Empire, that even the emperor existed because God allowed him to exist. It's not as though the emperor was somebody who was sovereign in his own right. God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. Caesar existed because God allowed him to exist. And because God allowed Caesar to exist, and because Caesar was the authority in the land, they were to be subject to his authority. But while Jesus acknowledged the authority of Caesar, in other words, the authority of the state, 
he also placed limits on that authority. He was saying that, yes, you are to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you are to give what belongs to God to him. And if there's ever a conflict between the two, in other words, Caesar and God are in conflict, then because you've been made in God's image, you are to give to him. So it's a case where Caesar and God both have authority, but if there's ever a conflict between the two, well, you have to give to God. You have to be obedient to him over and above the empire. We said that ultimately when it comes to Christians and their dealings with the state, there are only three options open to us. One option is that God alone has the authority. We pointed out last week that this is the monastic authority. This is the authority that says all secular institutions are corrupt, and the only way to live a truly holy life is to withdraw, withdraw from society. And there were some in the early church who actually did this. There were some believers, one by the name of Simon of Stiletus, who went out into the wilderness and lived on the top of a stone pillar, trying to remove himself from the corruption of the world. We said the only problem with this option, even though you're trying to live a holy life, is that Jesus made it very clear that we are not supposed to leave the world. We're to be in the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are to be a leavening influence. We're to be salt and light in the culture. In his high priestly prayer in John's gospel, Jesus was praying to the Father about his disciples, and he said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them while they're in it from the evil one. So really, that is not a biblical option for those who seek to be faithful to God, but live in this world. The second option we said was Caesar alone has the authority. This is the belief that there may be a God, but ultimately God is up there in heaven. He's distant. He's removed. And the only real authority that we have to deal with is Caesar. So you better make Caesar first. We said this is the most dangerous option because we all recognize that Caesar has a tendency to be corruptible. And then we said there was a third option, and the third option was Caesar and Christ both have authority, but ultimately God is dominant. And that was the option that Jesus was advocating. Now, it was a brilliant response on the part of the Lord, this business of paying taxes to Caesar, and they didn't know what to do. In fact, you'll notice in verse 22, when Jesus finished saying, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but render to God the things that are God, we're told they heard it and they marveled. In other words, they were dumbstruck. They thought they had him, and they realized that his answer was so brilliant, they had no response. And we're told they left him and went away. But they went away only for a time. Before long, another group was coming with an attempt to entrap Jesus. And the second attempt is found in verse 23 and following. We're told the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them, the woman died. I don't know about you, but I read this story. I almost have to laugh out loud. I mean, of course the woman died after seven brothers. Don't you think she was probably worn out from this family? Now, of course, this was not a legitimate question. Everybody knew that this sort of thing was not going to actually happen. This was a theoretical question. It was simply an attempt, as before, to somehow ensnare Jesus, entrap Jesus in his own 
words somehow trip him up. The key to understanding this is to recognize, verse 23, the Sadducees were those who say there is no resurrection. Now, they didn't believe in the resurrection. As I said, they were the skeptics of their day. They were the liberals of the day. If the Pharisees were the conservatives, the fundamentalists, the Sadducees were the liberals of their day, the progressives of their day. Whereas the Pharisees believed every aspect of the Old Testament and took it very seriously, the Sadducees only believed the first few books of the Bible. And the one thing they did not believe in was that when a person died, there would ever be a physical bodily resurrection. They denied that. So one of the things that you'll notice is this is really not a legitimate question. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and skip ahead to Acts chapter 23. We have a wonderful story about the Apostle Paul. It's in the latter part of his ministry. Paul, of course, had been arrested in Jerusalem, falsely charged with having taken a Gentile into the temple precincts. He actually had not done that. But as with Jesus, this was a trumped-up charge. And that was the accusation that was brought against him. And as a result, Paul was dragged before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which was composed of all of these groups, incidentally. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. They were all part of the Sanhedrin. And Paul is brought before them. The charges are serious. Uh, Paul is in danger of being executed for having taken or accused of having taken a Gentile into the temple precincts. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, one part of the council were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. Paul's given an opportunity to make a defense. Why have you done this? And Paul is going to defend himself. Everybody had a right under Jewish law and under Roman law to defend themselves, and Paul's going to defend himself. And here's his defense. He said, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul perceives that in the council there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees. Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. He's being charged with serious crimes. He's given an opportunity to make his defense, and his defense is this. He said, look, I'm not here because I took anybody into the temple precincts. I'm on trial for one reason and one reason only, because I, as a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees, believes in the resurrection of the dead. Now, in this particular instance, Paul wasn't simply talking about the general resurrection of the dead, which is what the Pharisees believed in. He was talking about the specific resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what he was all about, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus had conquered the powers of sin and death and set men free. And he said, that's why I am on trial. Look at verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're all there, united in their opposition to Paul. But when Paul brings up the subject of the resurrection, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. It's almost as though Paul has pulled the key on the grenade, thrown it into the room, and he just waits to see what's going to happen. It was a brilliant tactic on Paul's part. But it shows us when we go back here to Matthew chapter 23, how much these groups despised each other. And yet the tragedy is they despised Jesus even more. And so the Sadducees come with this question about the resurrection. And one of the things they want to do is show the people how ridiculous the belief in the resurrection is. But they knew enough about what the Pharisees believed about the resurrection to put this question to Jesus. Again, no matter how he answers, they think they've got him. On the one hand, if he says, yes, there is a resurrection and so forth, then the Sadducees are going to say, oh, come on, nobody believes that sort of thing anymore. On the other hand, if he denies the resurrection and he says this woman is not going to be married to anybody in heaven, well then, they've got him again. So it's not a legitimate question. Again, it's an attempt to entrap Jesus. It's a theoretical question. But for the Pharisees, it was a serious question. Uh, this is based upon what was known as levirate marriage in the Old Testament. Uh, the Latin word is levir. It literally means a husband's brother. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There was a provision in the Jewish law that said that if a man married a woman, and let's say uh, they're in their 20s, and within the first year of marriage, he dies. And perhaps they had one child um, very early on in the marriage. That woman and that child are in danger of being homeless. Or if they didn't have a child, uh, there is the danger that that husband, the deceased husband's land and property is going to pass outside the family. And so there was a provision in the law that stated, if the deceased man had brothers who were unmarried, they had the right, in some instances, the obligation to marry their brother's widow and raise up a family for him and keep the land and the property within the family. So it was an obligation to the family. And uh, this was a provision in the law, levirate marriage. And so they put before Jesus this theoretical situation. What if a man marries a woman and he dies and she has no progeny? Um, and then a second brother comes along and decides to marry her to keep the land within uh, the family and he dies. And then there is a third brother, and uh, he marries her, all in accordance with the law, and, and she marries all seven brothers, and then she finally dies, and there is no heir. Um, when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Because she was married to all the brothers. Now, as I said, it was a rather ridiculous question. But because it had to do with the law, and the Pharisees were so punctilious about the law, this was a tricky thing. How would Jesus reply? Well, here again, he has a brilliant response. 
what does he say? He says, the problem is that you do not know the scriptures. In other words, you're asking a question about the scriptures, you Sadducees, but the reality is you don't even know the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God. For in the resurrection, neither are, do people marry, nor are they given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Furthermore, he says, God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. It's Jesus' way of saying, here you are asking a question about the scriptures, but if you actually read the scriptures, and I'm going to answer on the basis of the scriptures because that's the basis of your question, if you actually knew the scriptures, you would know that that is not the way it's going to be in the life to come. So Jesus' response here is a little bit different. He simply accuses the Sadducees of not knowing the very thing, not knowing their subject matter talking about something of which they have no real knowledge. Jesus does something here similar to what he did when he answered the question about paying taxes to Caesar. We said that Jesus didn't deny the authority of Caesar when he answered that question, nor did he deny the authority of God. He acknowledged both, but at the same time, he made it very clear that while Caesar had authority, there were limits on Caesar's authority, and God was the ultimate authority to whom we owed our ultimate allegiance. In this particular occasion, what Jesus does here, it's important for us at least, is Jesus upholds the authority of the scripture. He doesn't deny the authority of the scripture. What he says to the Sadducees is that the problem with them and the problem with their question is that they don't know the scriptures. They're asking biblical questions without any biblical understanding. And I think that's very significant for you and for me, because I have said many times before, the real crisis that we face in Christianity in America today is not a question about human sexuality. That's what many people would have you believe. The whole issue is about human sexuality. What I submit to you is today is that the question is not about human sexuality. The question is not about divorce and remarriage. The whole question that is before us is a question of authority. What is the authority for the life of the Christian? Do we live under the authority of the culture, the vagaries and fashions of the time? If you think about it, both of these questions are about authority. The first question is about the authority of Caesar, which Jesus acknowledges, but with limits. The second question is about the authority of the scripture. And Jesus is very clear about this authority as well. I've said to you before that when it comes to the Bible, there are only three options open to us. Either you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and contains all things necessary to salvation, which is the traditional classic view of the church. It's the one we give lip service to every Sunday when we read the scriptures. Now, we might read a passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah, but when we get to the end of that passage, we do not say the word of Isaiah. We say what? The word of the Lord thanks be to God. The same is true if we're reading from an epistle. We might read from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and we'll introduce it that way. We'll say a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, but when we get to the end, we don't say the word of Paul. We say what? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe that God used human writers, but that God ultimately was the author. God used human writers, but the Holy Spirit was ultimately the author. He so superintended the process that what was produced was, in fact, a divine message, 
a divine word, the word of the Lord. Now that's the classic view, and it's what we give lip service to every single Sunday when we have the readings. Now that was a view that fell on hard times uh, in the latter part of the 18th, 19th century, but particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, when people began to argue that you really couldn't trust the Bible as a word from the Lord. Instead, you had to view the Bible as the words of men about the Lord, the words of men about God. Uh, the Bible is no authoritative word for our lives. It's not to say it doesn't have value. It has sociological value. It tells us what people in previous ages or in other cultures have thought about the divine, but it's not a word from God himself. Now, that was the view of the skeptics. That was the view of doubters. That's the view of atheists today. Many people will tell you that. You can't believe the Bible to be a divine word. You can believe that it has value, historical value. It gives us some insight into how people thought in a previous age. Again, it has sociological value. It tells us what people may have thought about a divine being, but we can't really believe. Come on, in this age of science and technology and all the advancements that we have, you really can't believe that the Bible is a word from the Lord. Now, the problem with that view, of course, is that it undermines everything that we believe as Christians. And so there were some, and I call this third view the liberal view, or the progressive view. The liberal view is the view that, well, all right, we don't want to say that the Bible is not the Word of God. But on the other hand, we don't want to seem as though we're backward and, and ignorant, and, and we deny science and all of the advances that have been made. So what we'll say is that the Bible is a combination of those two. It's a combination of the words of men and the words of God. Now, when you say that, it raises a further question. How do you determine which is which? How do you determine which parts of the Bible are God's words and which parts are merely men's words? And what you quickly discover is that it becomes a matter of personal taste. Oftentimes, it's like a smorgasbord. Uh, you gravitate toward those parts that you like the best, and you say, well, here's a divine word, and those parts that you don't like, you ignore, you push off to the side. And you quickly realize what happens when you get to that point. Uh, what happens is what happens in many of the mainline denominations. You find that there is division. The one thing that the Word of God should do, that is pull people together in unity, it actually ends up causing division. So I like to say that of these three options, the only one that is really a legitimate option for us is the first. Now, don't get me wrong. There are parts of the Bible that make me rather uncomfortable. There are some things in the Bible that, to be perfectly honest with you, make me uncomfortable about myself, my own life. There are some things that the Bible has to say about me as a human being that I'm not really comfortable with. But the Bible is like taking an aspirin, folks. You know, if you've got a headache or, or some other kind of muscle ache, you can take an aspirin, and that aspirin will take care of the problem. But everybody who's ever taken an aspirin knows what you do is you swallow it whole. You don't take an aspirin and chew it up. If you do, you'll feel worse after you've taken the aspirin than you did before. It's a bitter taste. You have to swallow it whole and trust that it will work it's magic. 
Well, the same is true when it comes to the scriptures. There are parts of the scriptures that we do not understand, some parts that we may struggle with, but the best thing that we can do as human beings, as Christians, is to swallow it whole, trusting that God knows best, living under the authority of that word, and trusting that it will be used to help grow us into the full stature of Christ, to be mature men and women in God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't use our minds. It doesn't mean that we don't take into consideration the advances in science. Sometimes they cast light on the scriptures. But what it does mean that when the scriptures are very clear, even when the scriptures are in conflict with the culture, with the vagaries and fashions of the time, we owe our ultimate allegiance to God's word. What Jesus is saying right here is that all of the Old Testament was in fact a divine word from the Lord. And the Sadducees, like the Pharisees before them, really didn't know how to answer. So Jesus has a brilliant response once again. It's a different response because it's a different kind of question. But in both instances, the people are stumped. Look at verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 22 after the Pharisees come with a question about paying taxes to Caesar and Jesus responds, we're told they marveled and left him and went away. On this particular instance, when the Sadducees asked this question about the resurrection, we're told that they were astonished at his teaching. So what happens next? Well, there is still yet another attempt and this attempt is, in many ways, the most insidious of all. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, excuse me, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, he asked, which is the great commandment of the law? Now, I say this is the most insidious question because there is a sense in which this is the one legitimate question. The Pharisees already had an answer to the first one. They already had an answer to the first question. They knew that people shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. But they knew that if they didn't pay taxes to Caesar, they were going to be in trouble with the authority. So they already had an idea of how Jesus ought to answer. The same was true when it came to the Sadducees. But this really was, this third question, a legitimate question. It was a question that everybody should have been concerned with. Really, what is the greatest commandment in the law? If it's all about keeping the commandments, which is the greatest? Which is the most important? Now, I say this is a legitimate question, but it's the most insidious question because it's really dishonest. How do we know it's a dishonest question? Other people have asked this question of Jesus. On one occasion, we're told a rich young ruler came up to Jesus and asked him the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus had replied, you know the commandments. And he said, yes, I have kept them all since I was a youth. He knew what was the greatest of the commandments. Jesus had taught on this on other occasions as well. He told the story of the Good Samaritan, for example which is about loving God and loving your neighbor. It was the same answer that he gives on this particular occasion. But we know that even though it's a legitimate question, it's a dishonest question. Why? 
because we're told the one who put it to him was a lawyer who asked the question for the purpose of testing him. If anybody else had been asking the question, it would have been a legitimate question. On this particular instance, it's a dishonest question because they brought in a lawyer who is an expert and they put the question to him with the purpose of testing him. Now there is a sense in which you have to ask yourself, what did they really hope to gain by this question? Um, shortly after this period in history, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Pharisees would come up with a whole catalog of commandments. You know, there are only the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments, the law given by Moses. But then there were commentaries on these commandments, explanations of how these commandments had to be enforced in a person's life and corporately in the life of the nation. And these commentaries were little commandments that were expansions on the original 10. And there were a lot of them. The Pharisees would produce 613 individual commandments that the people were expected to know and obey. Now, I don't want to see a show of hands this morning because I'll probably be disappointed. But how many of you know the Ten Commandments? How many of you, if, you, if I were to ask you, could actually recite all of the Ten Commandments? Um, some of you are raising your hands. Don't do that. I don't want to know if you can or you can't. But how many of you, just ask yourself that question, how many of you really could name the Ten Commandments? The Pharisees were saying it was not enough to know the Ten Commandments. You had to understand the commentary on those commandments. You had to understand 613 individual commandments in addition to the Ten. 248 of those were positive commandments. The thou shalts, you must do this. And 365 of them were negative. These are the things you must not do. So it wasn't just a question, which of the 10 is the most important? Their real question was, which of the 613 is the most important commandment? And this was something that was debated greatly by the Pharisees, by the rabbis, and they wanted to know what Jesus thought. This is why Jesus said to them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is the heavy burdens that Jesus was referring to. They put all of these heavy burdens on people, these, these commandments, what they're expected to do and not do, all of these things in order to get into heaven. Well, how did Jesus reply? Jesus' reply was simple. He said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. At which point Jesus could have stopped. He didn't have to say anything else at that point. But he says, for extra measure, I'll give you the second one as well. He said, you're worried about 613 commandments. If you can keep these two, you have kept all the rest by consequence. 
you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is everyone around you. If you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as the way you love yourself, then you have not only kept the greatest commandments, you have kept all the others. The 611 other commandments as a consequence. And we're told that the lawyer was impressed. He was impressed. Take a look at Mark's version of the story. You can keep your finger there in Matthew and just skip over to the right for a moment to Mark chapter 12, verses 32 through 34. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is the one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. On all three occasions, questions are put to Jesus for the purpose of ensnaring him and trapping him. On all three occasions, Jesus replies in a slightly different way. But on all three occasions, the people are stumped. They are marveling at him, and they dare not ask him any more questions. This last response, as I said, was so important because this was the most important of all the questions that they asked. The second one was really ridiculous. And the first one was not really of great significance in terms of salvation. But this last one was important. It's important because it tells us what really is required in order for us to come into a right relationship with God. Because man's true inclination is just the opposite. Professor John Gerstner, who was for many years a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, put it very well. He said, the first and greatest commandment is that we are to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves." That Those are the two great commandments upon which hang all the law and the prophets. He said, and yet for man, it is the exact opposite. Man's nature, man's natural inclination is to hate God, not love God. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 1. That's what he describes this. He describes this as haters of God. And man's real inclination is not to love his neighbor, but to kill his neighbor. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I tell you the truth, if you even have hard feelings toward your neighbor, you've already committed the sin of murder. Gerstner said man's true inclination is to hate God, to kill his neighbor, and to commit spiritual suicide every single day. And that's why loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the whole law. But of course, none of us is capable of doing that except what? By the supernatural power of God. And that's why we see what happens next in verses 41 and following. We're going to skip ahead here just a little bit. We read in verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They come to Jesus, the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, with a series of questions, all attempts to ensnare him, to entrap him, and Jesus replies in such a way that they have no response. They marvel at his teaching. But then Jesus has a question of his own. Turnabout is fair play. Jesus said, now, before you all go away, I've answered all your questions, but before you all go away, I, I've got a little question of my own for you. Tell me, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's important to understand that when Jesus asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? That he is referring to the Messiah in general. You know, sometimes people think that Christ is Jesus' surname. Uh, like my surname is Miller, Jeff Miller, or Rachel Murphy, or Elizabeth Scott. Uh, that's what we think. That, that, that's Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. That's not actually the case. His name was Jesus. Christ is a title. The word Christ means anointed one. The Christ is the Messiah. So when Jesus asks the question to the Pharisees here, he asks the question, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the anointed one? What do you think about the Christ? He's not asking a question specifically about himself at this point. Now, of course, he's driving at that, but that's not really the question. They've asked him questions. He said, I've got a question for you. You all know that a Messiah is coming, a Christ is coming, a Savior is coming. Well, tell me, whose son is he? Now, they immediately reply, oh, that's simple. He is the son of David. Now, that was the correct answer. The Old Testament did prophesy that one of David's heirs would come and be the Savior, the Messiah of his people. But while they gave the right answer, they really didn't understand what it meant. This is what I call the Sunday school answer. You know, there's some people that when they're asked the question, they can give the answer in Sunday school, even if they don't understand what the implications of that may be for their lives. The Old Testament is replete with examples of this. When I was uh, in high school, I took French. And um, in the first week, um, the teacher came along and handed out the textbooks, and I got my textbook. And uh, over the course of the week, she was teaching us, and, and she would give us assignments. And for the first two weeks, I did exceedingly well. I would hand in my homework, and she would just, you know, write back 100% on it. She was so impressed. She just couldn't believe that I could do it. And finally, at one point, she pulled me aside, and she asked me the question. She said, Monsieur Miller, did you take French at some point? And I said, no. And she said, well, everybody else seems to be struggling with the answers, but, but you always get it right. You get the tense right. You get everything, the grammar right, the punctual. It's just amazing to me. How, did you, how do you 
catch on so quickly when I, I can't seem to get the rest of the class on board, but you seem to know what's going on. And I said to her, well, it's simple. The answers are in the back of my book. And she said, let me see that book. And she realized that she had handed me the teacher's edition. And for two weeks, I was just writing out the answers and getting everything perfectly. Now, of course, she took that book away from me. She snatched it away immediately. But I didn't understand any of what she was teaching us, any more than anybody else in the class. But I was providing her with all the right answers. Here's a perfect example of that. They're asking Jesus all of these questions in an effort to ensnare him. He answers them perfectly. Now he's got a question for them. They give the right answer, but they don't understand really what it means for their lives. They don't understand the implication of what they're saying. And that's why Jesus decides to drill down a little deeper. He said, well, if that is the case, if the Messiah is the son of David, then how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Here's what's going on here. Jesus said, okay, that's the right answer. Yes, the Messiah is going to be one of David's sons. But in Psalm 110, David refers to the Messiah, the coming Savior, as his Lord. Now, why would David, the great king of Israel, refer to one of his progeny, as his Lord. Understand, in the first century, that would have been a very puzzling statement. In the ancient world, your father had absolute control over your life. It didn't matter what he did, and it didn't matter what you became. Your father, in first century culture, had complete control over your life, even when you were an adult. The only time you were ever freed from your father's authority was when you died or when he died. Otherwise, you had to do what your father said. He was the patriarch of the family. This is why the Old Testament speaks of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the founders of the faith. And the patriarch of the family had authority. You had to give him that authority. You had to give him that kind of respect. And here is David, the patriarch of the Jewish people, the great king, referring to one of his children, one of his progeny, one of his descendants as his Lord. No father in the ancient world would have ever called his child his Lord. And yet that's what David does. And so Jesus asked this question. He said, all right, the Messiah is supposed to be David's son. So why does David refer to one of his sons as his Lord? It was a really puzzling question. Now, in this particular instance, let me just say that a knowledge of the Hebrew language is a little helpful. Keep your finger there in Matthew and go back to the book of Psalms. Again, Psalms is an easy book to find. It's smack dab in the middle of your Bible. If you close your Bible, open it up to the center, you're bound to hit either Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left, and you're going to find Psalms. 
Look at Psalm 110. All you have to look at is the very first verse. This is the verse that Jesus is quoting in Matthew. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you're reading out of the English Standard Version, and this may be true also if you're reading out of the NIV, you may notice that while the word Lord is written twice in that first verse, you'll notice that the first Lord is all caps. How many of you see that in your Bible? Give me a thumbs up if in your Bible it's all caps. But the second Lord, you'll notice, is what? Capital L, small o-r-d. Do you see that? That's because while they are the same word translated into English, in Hebrew they are actually two different words. The first Lord in Hebrew is the sacred name for God. It's the name Yahweh, or the name Jehovah. It was the, the name that Jews were not permitted to speak. That's why it's translated here as Lord. But it's all caps because it's referring to God himself, the creator of the universe. So that is the word Yahweh. The second Lord, however, in that passage, is actually another word. It is the word Adonai. Now, that word is somebody who is greater than the speaker. That's what the word Adonai means. It is a great person greater than the one who is doing the speaking. So what it really says is here, God says to the one who is greater than I am, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God is speaking. He's speaking to David. He's speaking of one of David's heirs who is actually greater than David. And you can see that there, even in the English translation, but it's particularly true in the Hebrew. And that's why Jesus asked the question. God, Yahweh, is speaking to David of a Lord, Adonai, who will be David's son, but will be greater than David. The Lord will be enthroned, this Lord, this descendant of David, will be enthroned above all others at God's right hand so that even David will be subject to the authority of one of his heirs. And we said, if you, were, if you listened to my sermon from this past Sunday on Ascension, we said that that phrase, God's right hand or the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that is the place of supreme honor. It is the place that is reserved for the king's son. It is the place of influence and authority. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, you've got the answer right. The Messiah is going to be a son of David, but he's going to be greater than David. He's going to be great David's greater son. And he's going to be seated at the right hand of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's going to be given the place of supreme honor, the place of supreme authority. And of course, what Jesus was referring to was himself. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And he wasn't simply claiming to be the Messiah who was going to deliver them from the power of the Romans. Jesus was making it very clear to these people he was going to be the Messiah who was going to be enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty 
to whom all nations, all peoples, all sects would ultimately be subject. Every knee would bow to him. And the Pharisees, when they realized what Jesus was driving at, were absolutely stumped. But we are not. We know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Turn now to Philippians for just a moment, because here in Philippians, in Paul's great letter, we have a fuller explanation of what Jesus is really trying to teach here. It's, it's really a mature explanation of what Jesus is teaching here. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, we read these words. Let this mind be among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, being coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Verse 46 says, They dare not ask him any more questions. They knew very clearly what he was saying. And they understood the implications for the first time of what they really meant when they said that the Messiah was going to be David's greater son. Now, something happened here when Jesus did this to them. When they walked away, silent, amazed, stumped, what Jesus really did, and I don't think he intended to do this. I think he intended to expose them. But what he really did in first century society was he shamed them. And I can tell you the worst thing that you could ever do to somebody in first century Middle Eastern society was to shame them. Middle Eastern society is a shame-based society. It's a shame-based system. You may have heard about one of the honor killings that took place recently where a young girl went off and ran away with her boyfriend. And she did this contrary to the wishes of her father. And her father, when he finally caught up with her, killed her. And in many parts of the Middle East, this kind of honor killing is, is still acceptable within the culture. It's because the worst thing you can do to your family, the worst thing you can do to your father or to your mother is to shame them. And if you shame them, the price for doing so is death. Well, that's what Jesus did. He shamed these people. He revealed their duplicity and their ignorance. And the price for exposing them, the price for shaming them, even though he was speaking the truth, the price for doing so was going to be death. It was going to be his death. He would have to pay the price for what he had done. And from this point forward, what we're going to discover is that that is what the Pharisees are intent on doing. They're no longer interested in simply tripping Jesus up ensnaring Jesus, entrapping Jesus, discrediting Jesus in the eyes of the people. Not anymore. They're done with Jesus. They realize that they do not have the ability to somehow ensnare him, entrap him. He's too quick. He's too good for them. Over and over again, he beats them at their own game. From here on out, having been publicly shamed, they are going to plot Jesus' death. And by the end of the week, they're going to be successful. 
By the end of the week, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest are going to be shouts of crucify him, crucify him. The one who came into Jerusalem in great triumph will be led outside the city walls and crucified on a cross. But that cross, as with these questions, will become the means of their undoing. And that's what we'll take a look at next week. There is one thing to say here, however, just sort of as a postscript. The Pharisees never really understood what Jesus was all about, at least in mass they didn't understand. But it is interesting to note that there was one who did understand. There was eventually a Pharisee who began to read through the Old Testament and began to understand that all of this was about Jesus. That the Bible was, in fact, as we said earlier, the Word of God. That it did have one author. God was the author. Many writers, but one author. And what's more, he discovered, unlike his fellow Pharisees, that there was one author with one book and one theme running through that book from start to finish. And that theme was the saving work of God in the person of his servant, Jesus Christ. I want to close with a passage from Romans. If you will, turn to Romans chapter 1. This is the beginning of Paul's greatest, many people consider to be uh, the most significant letter that Paul ever wrote, his great epistle to the Romans. So many people have been converted as a consequence of just reading this one book. Uh, St. Augustine credits Romans with his conversion. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, was converted as a consequence of reading through the first chapter of Romans. John Wesley, the great 18th century Anglican evangelist and founder of Methodism, was converted as a consequence of reading Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is a great letter, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to study this book as well. It's a wonderful book. It's profound. It's been described as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. But look at how it begins. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. There's the title. Christ, the anointed Jesus, the anointed one. Paul is a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, as we've already seen, but unlike his fellow Pharisees, he had come to realize that Jesus is the Christ, the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. And Paul is his servant, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that had been promised beforehand in the prophets. The gospel that concerns what? That concerns his son. Who was descended from David. There it is. A reference to Psalm 110. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. Physically speaking, he was David's son. David's blood ran through his veins. Mary was a descendant of David. But even though he was the son of David, according to the flesh, he was declared, and the word declared there might better be translated revealed, revealed to be greater than David. For he was not only David's son, he was revealed to be the son of God in power. 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's great revelation. He had come to realize what no one else among the Pharisees realized, or at least was willing to acknowledge, that Jesus was, in fact, the Savior. He was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the descendant of David, but he was far greater than David himself. He was, in fact, the divine Son of God. And in that revelation, Paul discovered life everlasting, and he gave himself forever to be a servant of that anointed one. As Christians, that's what we are called to do. We are called to recognize Jesus for who he is, truly. And we are called to do better than the scribes and the Pharisees. If the Lord has something to say to us that may be troubling to us, it may be difficult for us to hear, it is a truth, but it is a truth that is spoken in love, and we are subject to his authority. And we are to give our lives in service to him, for it is in losing ourselves that we discover what life is really all about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was no mere prophet. He was no savior who came simply to deal with temporal problems. He came to deal with the problem of all mankind, the problem of sin. We thank you that he was so wise that he was able to beat the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. But we are grateful especially for the fact that he didn't stop with simply answering their questions. He put a question to them, a question of his own, a question that goes to the heart of what it really means to be a follower of God, a question that goes to the heart of what it really means to be a Christian, the realization that Jesus is the son of David and the son of God, declared to be so by his power and by his resurrection. We thank you that we are called to be his servants, to give ourselves and everything that we have to him, to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but above all else, to render to God what belongs to ourselves or belongs to him, ourselves, our souls and bodies. Grant us the grace, Lord, to do better than the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. Grant us the grace to give everything that we have in the service of him who gave everything for us, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.